Let's say a prayer as we look at the scripture this morning, if we can. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, gracious God, we're so grateful that whenever we're gathered together, you are with us. We, we pause in our busy lives and we acknowledge that you are our leader and our guide. Uh, you're the one who saves us, forgives us, and sends us out into the world that you love. And so in the, in the midst of all the things going on in our lives, we pause, God, we want to hear from you. We want to be taught by you, encouraged by you, challenged by you. Um, God, remind us who we are and what we're here to do as we listen to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, we're in the middle of a series called Books We Don't Read. And that's about the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. So in case you weren't with us last week when we started the series, we are focused this summer on taking a brief look at these short books that exist at the end of the Old Testament. And we're encouraging you to try to read these books with us this summer. If you haven't read them in a while or maybe have never read them, it, you can read any of them in one sitting. So encouraging you to take a look at some of these books and read them with us and see what God might have to say to us together uh, over the summer. If you didn't hear Pastor Stephanie's sermon last Sunday, I really encourage you to listen to it uh, because she did a lot of setup for how we go about reading these kinds of books and how you can interpret them well and some things to kind of watch out for. So go back and watch that on Facebook or, or listen to the podcast. In particular, she talked about the difference between dualistic thinking, like everything is either this or that, black or white, and dialogical thinking, which allows us to, to realize that sometimes things kind of paradoxically exist at the same time that might not seem like they should exist at the same time. And one of the examples she gave was that in a lot of these minor prophet books, God is both angry and loving at the same time. God is upset about injustice. God is angry at the Israelites for not doing the things that they said they were going to do. And at the very same time, God is an incredibly, infinitely loving God who is seeking to woo them back. And it's hard for us to hold those in our brain at the same time. Like, are you angry or are you loving? And the answer is sort of yes right? So go back and listen to that sermon if you didn't hear it last week, because it will help you understand the rest of our series as we move forward over the summer, and it will help your reading of these books as you go about reading them on your own. So today we're going to take a look at the book of Hosea. So if you have a Bible or a phone or something, you might want to pull up the book of Hosea, because we're going to hit a number of verses uh, in that story. And one of the main points of Hosea is that God continues to love God's people even when they are unfaithful. God continues to love God's people even despite their unfaithfulness to God. And so I want to start by just talking about why is God so upset with the people that are addressed in Hosea? If you read it this week, you'll know exactly what I mean. There are chapters and chapters of God being upset with them. Why is God upset and what does them being unfaithful mean? Okay, so let me give you three quick bullets that will help you understand the rest of this. First, God is upset because the people at the time don't know who God is, meaning they're, they're ignorant of God. And there's one whole section for the religious leaders, the priests, the pastors of the time, saying you all have failed your people because you've not taught them who God is. And in some sense, it's not their fault because you didn't do what you were supposed to do in teaching them who God has been to their ancestors and the relational covenant that we have with them. And they don't know some of that stuff. And they're acting in ways that are against that because of their ignorance. 
And that's part of their unfaithfulness. The second thing is that they look to foreign countries, Egypt, Assyria, and others, to help solve their problems. They look to their government solutions and foreign relations before they pray about it and talk to God about their problems. So they think, we can make a deal with Egypt, and then when we get in a fight with this other country, Egypt will save our butts. And then a little bit later, they swip, and they say, well, once we get in trouble with Egypt, we'll make a deal with Assyria, and Assyria will save us. And they're spending all this energy trying to construct these allegiances in the political world, and they're still not talking to God or asking God what God wants for them. And so that's a part of their unfaithfulness. And the third thing is that they're outright worshiping other gods. The one that's most mentioned the most is Baal, which is a god that was believed to give them success in farming, like economic success, and also success in fertility and, and having more children. And so they're doing all kinds of rituals and worship services to try to please Baal so that they can uh, have a better farming season and have more children, and among other things. And so this lack of faithfulness is what God is upset about. These people don't know me. They look to other countries before they look to me. They worship other gods that don't even exist. And I'm not happy about it. I'm angry about it for a whole bunch of reasons. And as I, as I really read this book and sort of thought about us and our church, I started to realize lack of faithfulness in our time, not just in our church, but in our time, is the same level of danger for us as it was for them, I really think. And, and I'll explain what I mean. But I think we are constantly tempted in the 21st century, we are constantly tempted to make something other than God the most important thing in our lives. We are constantly tempted to make something other than God the most important thing in our lives, which is what unfaithfulness is, right? We, we are tempted by work. We are tempted by various different definitions of success. We're tempted by what other people think about our latest post. We're tempted by our kids, by our money, by our sexuality, by our happiness, our pursuit of our own happiness. There are a million things that want to be the most important thing in your life, yes? And the constant temptation is to place one of those things that seems like it might give you a better life than whatever God has in mind for you at the top of your list, in your heart, in your mind, in your life. That's just as real of a temptation in the 21st century as it was in the 8th century before Jesus was born. And so the book of Hosea is very relevant, I think. And what we're living through today, and it's very important for us to hear this message from this, from this book. Okay, so here's a little bit of background. Hosea is written about a time in the 8th century, and the, and the numbers are weird back before Jesus was born. So the 8th century is really the 700s, if you didn't know that. So it's the 700s-ish before Jesus was born. Uh, we talked about this timeline last week when, when Steph put it up. So we're, we're kind of in this period where the kingdoms are divided in Israel. There's a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. And they're kind of at odds with each other and everybody else. And that goes on till uh, the 500-ish mark when they're both conquered and sent into exile. So we're in this middle period where they're, they've already split and they're fighting with each other and everybody else. And there's a zillion kings and most of them are bad and they kind of don't know what they're doing. And, they're, and God's trying to warn them and call them back into relationship for hundreds of years. But Hosea is the first book of the 12 minor prophets trying to call these people back into right relationship with God. 
So if you were going to read Hosea this week, my recommendation is that you do two things. The first thing is you go to thebibleproject.com, okay? Great website. Look for the video uh, that says uh, the book of Hosea, summary. Or it's on our Facebook, it's on our Mill City Church page on the blog that Steph put up. I think we have that. Yep, there it is. So go there, watch the video. It's like seven minutes long. Then grab a Bible, physical Bible, or grab your phone, get the Bible app. On the Bible app, you can just click on the book and have it talk to you on your way to work or school or wherever you're going. It will read the book to you. You can probably have it read to you on your way to school and back, on your way to work and back in one day. That's all it takes. Watch the video, read the book, see what, see what God might say to you. Here's the first three, two to two and a half minutes of the video that the Bible Project put together on Hosea to kind of give you a little background. The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian Empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married, but they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land and they took all the abundance that he gave them and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel and he thinks about doing so but instead he says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why? It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled, and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry explores these themes in more depth. All right, so you can watch the rest of that video later today. But it starts this book out with this story of the, the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer who are having infidelity problems and three children that God instructs them to give names that are symbolic protests or symbolic 
representations of God's feelings. The first child's name is Jezreel, which they're given the name for a valley uh, in Israel where a horrible murder was created and a terrible injustice committed. So that's the kid's name. The kid is wandering around the village named Jezreel, which would um, be like named, being named Auschwitz today. The second kid's name is Lo-Rohama. Lo-Rohama. The, the word Lo in Hebrew is always not or no. So Lo-Rohama means not loved. So then the second child's wandering around these villages named not loved, like the people of God are not loved anymore by God. And the last child's name is Lo-Ami, which is not my people. So God is trying to say through these children, it's not just like an idea, right? It's not just a sermon that they can dismiss. These are physical humans who are walking around with this symbolism in their name as people are calling out their name to them on a daily basis, saying, this is a reminder of a horrible injustice. This is God saying he doesn't love us anymore. This is God saying they're not really my people. That's the prophet's family life. This is what is called prophetic symbolism. Most of this book is poetry. And you have to understand prophetic symbolism. This is not a book about marriage advice, okay? Don't take marriage advice away from Hosea. It is God saying, this is a physical representation, a real life representation of how I feel about our relationship right now. I feel like I don't want to love you anymore. I feel like you're not really my people. I cannot understand how you let some of these injustices like what happened to Jezreel stand. I'm so upset about it. I want children to be named that so it will never be uh, out of your experience. L listen to what it says in Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3 is a very short chapter and it it says exactly what, what prophetic symbolism is about. Here's the first verse. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Watch out for the sacred raisin cakes. The sacred raisin cakes are like these sweet treats that that when they were worshiping other gods, you got, you got to eat raisin cakes, and it was awesome. So you wanted to worship that god because you loved the sweet raisin cakes. Watch out for the sweet raisin cakes. There are symbols in this book that are trying to communicate what God is feeling. A little while ago, a few months ago, I was at an academic conference, and I heard a presentation by a guy named Andre Henry. I want to tell you a little bit about him. He's in Southern California, and he's studying at a seminary. And he was studying these prophetic symbols in the Old Testament and, and how prophets in different parts of Scripture did physical things like this, like name kids these crazy names, in order to represent God's message to people in a very physical way. And he was also personally going through a whole lot of struggle because of the death of Philando Castile in July of 2016, which is almost three years ago now, right here in St. Paul. And so he was thinking, uh, he felt led by God to try to create a prophetic symbol in the 21st century of his own uh, experience of suffering as a black man in America uh, experiencing racism. And so here's a picture of what he did, all right? 
uh, he felt like God asked him to do this, to take a rock, a big boulder that's like, like very heavy, like this size, right? Like you can barely pick it up. And for at least a month, carry this boulder around everywhere he went, when he went to class, when he went to work, when he went home, wherever he went, where he went shopping, he took the boulder around as a physical representation to try to say, we as a, as a society have to do something about the oppression of black people in the United States of America. And they, as, it, as it emerged and evolved, the rock got things written on it, like uh, police violence and incarceration and white fragility. And, and, it, and it kind of took on this life. And, and he writes on his blog, which you can, you can look up, he writes on this blog the amazing response that he got to carrying this rock around. He got people who write him on Facebook and others and say, this is amazing, thank you for doing this, can I help you carry the rock around? So apparently there was a schedule where other people would take the rock around so he could have a break and, and, and the protest would go on. And then there were lots of people, I think probably more people, who were so angry at him. They were deeply offended by the rock. They told him, you know, church people and not church people, like, this is inappropriate. You're making the problem worse. You need to check yourself. You need to redefine racism. You don't understand what we're talking about. They're just super angry at him. And really all he's doing is carrying a giant rock around. Now, I'm telling you this story because I don't think prophetic symbolism is only something that was meant for the 8th century before Christ. Something different happens when there's a physical representation of a message in our communities. And so God is using Hosea's experience with Gomer and his kids to be a constant reminder to the Israelites and to Judah that God is upset, that God is heartbroken over the unfaithfulness of God's people. God is hurt, God is angry, God is sad about the ways God people have decided to turn towards everything but God to meet their needs and find what they have, have to have in their lives. Put real bluntly, God feels cheated on. And that's why he uses this symbolic metaphor in this book. Chapters four to 10 in this book are one giant complaint by God to the people of God. Over and over and over again, it seems when you listen to it, you might think, am I in the fourth chapter or the sixth chapter or the eighth chapter? Like this all sounds kind of the same. And it highlights that God felt like he needed to say over and over and over again, you don't seem to get it. I am deeply offended by your unfaithfulness. In chapter six, here's how he describes that, kind of in the middle of this rant. He says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? That's another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. What can I do with you, Judah? That's the southern kingdom. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Through this, the poetry and the symbolism of this moment, right, God's trying to say through the prophet, 
I don't know what to do anymore. You don't seem to get it. I don't want you to keep coming to worship and offering me your offerings and your sacrifices and trying to say you're obeying the laws. I want mercy in our relationship together. I want mercy in the world that you live in. I want you to be people of mercy in the world that you live in. We'll come back to that passage in a little bit. Sometimes God needs to take these dramatic actions and use dramatic language just to get our attention. I imagine God this week like, have you ever been in those conversations where people are like this? Like, oh yeah, that's what happened? How was your day again? Yeah, yeah. You, you know you have, they're not paying attention to you at all, right? The screen has their entire attention. I sort of feel like God's saying, what do I have to do to get you to put down your phone and look at me in the face so we can have an honest conversation? What sort of language do I need to know? What crazy names do the kids in the streets have to have before you'll listen to me? That's the feeling that's coming through in Hosea. So God has two main responses to the unfaithfulness that he finds in the northern and the southern kingdoms at this time. The first response is to allow Israel to experience the consequences of their actions. God tells them over and over again, because you have placed your primary faith in your allegiances with foreign military powers, those foreign military powers are ultimately going to come and destroy you and take away your autonomy and your freedom. Because you've placed hope in gods like Baal that don't exist, the hope that you have for your farming success and your family success is not going to happen. You're, you're going to have famine and you're, you're going to have desolation. Because you've placed your faith primarily in your own kings, who are a total disaster most of the time. Because you asked me for another king besides me, those kings are going to turn selfish and they're going to take everything they can from you to make their lives awesome and yours terrible. That's not God saying, I'm, de I'm desperate to punish you. He's just saying, because those are your primary places that you look for, for happiness and health and wealth and a good life, they're going to turn on you. And if you would just look for, look for me instead, I have a good life that I want to give you. The second response that God has to their unfaithfulness is that God responds by continuing to pursue relationship with God's people despite their actions. You heard this in the video. God had every right to just say to the, the nations of Israel and Judah, we're done. You agreed to this. We had a covenant. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. I did. Now we're done. You're not my people. I don't need to love you anymore. If you're not going to live the way that I've called you to live, so that the rest of the world can know who I am, I'll find someone else who can. That would have been a totally justified response by God, wouldn't it have? But we learn something about God's character when despite God's anger and sadness and hurt and frustration, God's ultimate response is, no, I will renew my covenant with them. I will be faithful even when they are unfaithful. Here's how that reads in uh, Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. Through the prophet, God says, How can I give up? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. 
I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man. I, the Holy One among you, I will not come against their cities. God could have done that and it would have been legally justified, but God's heart comes through and says, I don't want to give up on you. Even though you're unfaithful and you probably continue to be unfaithful, I refuse to give up on you. That's the character of God coming through in Hosea. This is who the God of the Bible is. One final passage here in 13, 14, towards the end. God says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? God doesn't just intend to address the issues of the 8th century BCE. God is giving us a hint here that despite the unfaithfulness of God's people, God will rescue us from everything, from ourselves, from death, from sin, from evil, from everything. God has in mind something much bigger than just following the rules that were set thousands of years ago. And and that faithfulness of God comes through most clearly in Jesus Christ. Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, two times in the book of Matthew. Twice he's being pushed by the Pharisees who say, first, why does Jesus eat with sinners? Doesn't he know that by eating with sinners he's disobeying the law? And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then later, his disciples are eating things on the Sabbath that they're not supposed to be eating. And again, he gets confronted. And they say, don't you know you're not supposed to eat the the heads of the grain on the Sabbath? And he says, here's what you need to learn. Go and learn what it means when it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus twice points back to Hosea and the people who he was talking to would have known that he was quoting Hosea, to say that despite the unfaithfulness of, of people, despite what the rules say, God desires to be a merciful God and desires people who love him to be merciful in return. This is what God's heart is like. When you read a book like Hosea, you might be tempted to think, this Old Testament God's real angry. I don't like the Old Testament God. Old Testament God's real angry. Let's go back to talking about the New Testament. And the truth is, the anger of the Old Testament that God expresses is this raw emotion that comes from loving people so much that you can't stand it. That you have to express that their infidelity, their unfaithfulness, the distance in your relationship is so bothersome to you that it manifests in anger and hurt and pain and sadness. And our God, the God of the Bible, isn't afraid to say, that's what I'm feeling right now. Isn't it amazing that in the Bible we don't have this stoic God that just does everything perfectly and expects us to do everything perfectly? Instead, he's like, I'm so mad at you right now. And I should give up on you. But I won't. Because that's not who I am. And instead of expecting you to be perfectly faithful people, I will send my son to be faithful where you are unfaithful. Jesus was the perfect human being who fulfilled what we said we would fulfill in our relationship with God. 
Jesus gives his life up for us in order that we could have full relationship with God so that when we are unfaithful today, which we are sometimes, right? We don't have to feel like the people in Hosea where there was just this destruction in front of us. Instead, we can turn to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and say, we have been unfaithful. Either we didn't know or we turned to somebody else or we thought we could do it ourselves. We made something else more important in our lives than you. Please forgive us. And we know that because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, that forgiveness is available to us, to all of us, and to anyone in the world, not just people in churches or people who are Christians. Anybody can turn to Jesus Christ and experience the freedom and forgiveness that comes from faith in Christ because he is faithful when we have been unfaithful. So let me just close here and invite the band to come back up. What, what does Hosea mean for us today? This was a, an important question for me this week. What's the potential warning for us? These are warning books. If Hosea was warning us about stuff today, what would he be warning us about? I think that he'd be wanting to say to us, be careful that you don't forget God and make something else more important in your life than your relationship with God and the community of people that are trying to follow Jesus. Worshiping a false god in 21st century terms, I think, just means that something has replaced Jesus as the most important thing in your heart. You find yourself turning to other people, other organizations, other sources, companies, governments, to help advise you, to help you make meaning out of your life, rather than seeking that meaning and purpose and salvation from Jesus Christ. There's a story uh, of uh, a short period in my own life where I, I feel like I lived this out post-college. I was so angry at God for some unanswered prayers or what I perceived to be unanswered prayers that I decided I'm done, I'm taking a break. And I know for some of you that's part of your story and your relationship with Jesus too, that you've taken a break at times. And so I quit going to church and I didn't talk to God and I wasn't reading my Bible and I was being unfaithful, intentionally unfaithful because I thought God doesn't hear me, I don't hear God, I'm done. Probably for a year of my life in my early 20s, I just was trying to live out that way. And there were all kinds of things that could have helped me make meaning, it seemed like, right? Like work, work was going well, maybe I should dedicate myself to work. Relationships were, were strong, maybe I should be a good friend, maybe I should be in this romantic relationship. There's sort of all these options for orienting your life. But it became clear at the end of, end of a year, for me, like all of this stuff isn't going to fulfill me the way that my relationship with God does. And so I had to repent and turn around and say, God, I've been unfaithful. I haven't made you the priority in my life, and I want to do that again. Will you forgive me? And the, the grace and mercy that Jesus is talking about when he quotes Hosea is present for us in those kinds of moments. So if you're one of those people who feel like, man, I, I have been unfaithful. I have turned my back on God. I want you to hear me say clearly before we take communion that the God of the universe through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit wants you to come back wants you to be forgiven. That God is hurting and sad because you're disconnected. That God created you for relationship and wants it desperately and will do anything to get it back. Jesus invites us to trust his faithfulness when we're unfaithful. We can't be perfectly faithful, but Jesus can. 
And if we trust him and continually, daily turn towards him, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness for us. And we can be the people that God wants us to be so that the world might know what this God is like. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful for everything that you've done for us. We continue to expand our understanding of everything that you've accomplished through your death and resurrection, your defeat over evil and death. God, give us confidence that your forgiveness is present for us as we take communion today. If we feel like we've been unfaithful, God, help us to be restored in our relationship with you. Help us to turn back towards you. For people in our lives that we know, God, have turned their back on you, we pray for them today. We pray that they wouldn't feel judgment or condemnation, but a loving God who desperately wants them to come back into relationship. We pray for circumstances in their lives, God, that would help them to be invited back into your presence and back into your kingdom, God. Help us to be people who model that level of mercy in their lives that they might experience you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll invite the communion servers to come forward. If you've not worshiped with us before at Mill City Church, you do not have to be a member of Mill City Church to participate in communion. You just have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died and rose again for everyone who has faith in Christ. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to participate in communion. When you come up here, you will find uh, some gluten-free crackers and some grape juice. And you take a cracker that represents Jesus' body given for us, and you dip it in the juice that represents Jesus' blood shed for us. And today, feel the connection that God desires to have with you as a loving God who will never give up no matter what has happened in your life, no matter how many times you've turned your back. This is offered for you, God's grace and mercy. You can come up and take communion whenever you're ready at the end uh, during this next song, and there will be people along the walls who will be willing to pray for you if you want that on your way back to your seat. So please take advantage of that opportunity.